This week on the show, on the loss and preservation of knowledge, and we discuss a little bit the pros and cons, and you are invited to do the same. Unix recovery legend, a chilling story about how everything went well after some RMRF going wrong, useful Unix commands for data science, tarsnap outage port post-mortems, OpenBSD 7.3 on a 20-year-old IBM ThinkPad R31, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 524, Legendary Unix Recovery, recorded on the 10th of August, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. I hope you enjoy, well, the time of day you're listening to this too. Wow, this is off to a great start already. Um, we have interesting headlines that we are discussing a little bit. So let's first read into the whole article. It's a longer one. Uh, we're not going into the full depth of it, but uh, you're certainly welcome to do that on your own. It's linked on the show notes as always, and it's uh headline is on the loss and preservation of knowledge uh this is uh, an excerpt from a draft of their uh, the author's upcoming book uh, on great founder theory and uh, our own jt thought this would be interesting in the context of bsd so let's uh start reading a couple first paragraphs to kind of know what this is about let's say you are designing a research program and you're realizing that the topic you're hoping to understand is too big to cover in your lifetime how do you make sure that people continue your work after you're gone? Or say you are trying to understand what Aristotle would think about artificial intelligence. Should you spend time reading and trying to understand Aristotle's works? Or can you talk to modern Aristotelian scholars and defer to their opinion? How can you make this decision? Both these goals require an understanding of traditions of knowledge. In particular, an understanding of whether a tradition of knowledge has been successfully or unsuccessfully transmitted. But first, what is tradition of knowledge? So a tradition of knowledge is a body of knowledge that has been consecutively and successfully worked on by multiple generations of scholars or practitioners. In talking about a tradition of knowledge, we may be talking about a philosophical school of thought, or perhaps a tradition of intricate rituals in a religion, or even something as humble as the knowledge of how to fashion the best wooden toy horse, passed down from one craftsman to another. In the contemporary world, it may include something like the tacit knowledge of how a code base really works, which brings us back into the BSD space, uh, which uh, seniors engineers teach to junior engineers. It is useful to classify traditions of knowledge into three types, living, dead, and lost traditions. So they define each of those here. A living tradition of knowledge is a tradition whose body of knowledge has been successfully transferred, like passing on to people who comprehend uh, it fully like cryptography the content of the tradition's body of knowledge does not have to be strictly or fully accurate for the tradition to be living it merely needs to be passed on then there's a dead tradition um that that tradition of knowledge is a tradition whose body of knowledge has been unsuccessfully transferred like its external forms 
Its trappings, such as written texts, have been transferred, but not the full understanding of how to carry out this tradition of knowledge as practiced. Like uh, scholars who can recite Aristotle, but can't use arguments as he did. Buddhist monks who chant the instructions to meditation rather than meditating. This means a tradition can be dead while people still read its texts. And a lost tradition of knowledge is a tradition that has not been transferred at all, like numerous schools during the hundred schools of thought period in China, the theology of the Cathars, which is only preserved in the words of the critics, etc. The people who had the knowledge died without leaving any successors or substantial record of the knowledge. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Um, there's a lot of things, and you think back of like the project, um, all the all the BSD projects, for example. Um, there's going to be uh, knowledge that comes in, or the knowledge that started up those those projects, and then uh, you know then they've faded out, but other people have come into those projects. So basically, it's a living tradition of knowledge, and uh, programming ideals and ways that they've achieved uh, progression of those operating systems uh, through their lifetime. So you know that's a living trend, an example of a living transition. And I suppose you know, Benedict, you your work in the university, so you get to see this uh, you know, firsthand. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember I was studying there, and I brought some stuff that I knew into my university career that I didn't have to learn there again, or only um, some additional bits that I didn't know before. For example, in like programming, I had a bit of programming knowledge, but then there were other concepts that my previous programming uh, programming experiences didn't cover. So I just had to add the, to my existing knowledge. Then there was completely new topics that I have never heard about. So that's built on top of something that I uh, had learned earlier. So there's also a logical succession of uh, topics. And then, of course, in the masters, you have all these modern uh, things typically where you are kind of hearing about it but have typically no uh, prior experience from it and that's similar similar here um, because students nowadays they kind of bring knowledge with them that i didn't have at the time i was studying so they have a lot of pre-knowledge from either their school days or they just didn't have to bother with like CVS or SVN, for example. They just bring Git knowledge into the university. Mm. At, at my point, Git wasn't there yet, so I had to learn it eventually. But nowadays, it's kind of uh, available knowledge or like HTML, right? At one point, someone had to learn HTML, but these days, either people don't know it at all or they just, yeah, we all know it. Don't worry. Don't bother. We have to have no extra uh, course on that. So yeah. some knowledge is kind of instilled at one point into a, a generation that they kind of not need extra education on. On the other hand, other things that I have learned are now totally obsolete. And back in the time when I was studying, they were kind of, yeah, that's the next big thing. Everyone has to know this now and no one's talking about it this these days. So there's the lost knowledge, I guess. If someone will dig it up one time, could be, but I... I doubt it at this point because the world has also moved on and people adapted to what's currently uh, going on in computing. Yeah, that's um, like I find in in my workplace uh, things that I learnt and um, you know was was set in my ways uh, because it achieved what we needed to achieve back in the time is uh, really no longer relevant and um, 
it's hard to um it, well it's a bit disappointing that some of that knowledge will get lost it'll become you know uh, a lost tradition or even a um dead transition uh, tradition mm. um because the, the knowledge no longer needs to be known by uh the colleagues uh that I'm just training up that are coming into the IT industry so yeah, yeah. it's it's also a- i mean fast changing knowledge and slow changing knowledge i mean if you uh, like working in web development i mean there's every every two weeks uh, it seems there's a new web framework that everyone is now using for all of a sudden and you just need time to get into that and then there's the the knowledge you learn once and that doesn't change that often or not that quickly like the basics and there you can kind of lay back in this knowledge if you're working in, in a certain space then you can kind of be safe for a number of years doing just that and that's fine without having some radical revolutionary changes that will threaten all your prior knowledge. And at the moment, I, in my own line of work, I also have to learn a couple new things because I changed uh, within the department a little bit. And now they kind of ask, hey, Benedict, we need a Docker container created from a GitLab pipeline that does certain things. And I'm like, uh, well, never done this before. I need to look this up before I can make any, any kind of contribution again. And they kind of realized that. And since that is now the de facto standard and it's from one year to the next, it's kind of became that way. Uh, But I had no time because I was busy with other stuff getting into that yet. So I have to either take a course or spend time learning that on my own, if that's possible. And, you know, all of the previous things that I did are not kind of lost but they're not relevant at this point to the current state of uh the university or what we're uh, what's required in my line of work mm. so also the scholars need to uh not stick with the past too much if they're i mean teaching the the basics that's that's perfectly fine but at one point you're kind of like oh well this this chat gpt thing is now around we kind of uh can't do things the way we used to and i think that shakes things up and also forces people to keep their knowledge updated this way. Yeah, I wonder how much um, knowledge will be lost um, or or people will be learning, um, you know, if people keep referencing things like chat GPT, um, will the, the living tradition um, change as well and will that knowledge be, you know, diffused somehow? Is, will it become diluted? Um, because a machine is using an algorithm to to come up with uh, transferring that knowledge when somebody asks the question. Yeah, and I have a lot of fun memories just learning stuff, even though it was a big time investment, and that is now kind of obsolete now. But I, the actual process of learning, like sitting down with someone and either you explain it to them or they explain it to you, and you afterwards kind of like, huh cool i understand it now i can use it and that's a very satisfying feeling right that's why i'm probably still in university because i see students at the first uh uh, day of the semester they're kind of like uh udix what's that and at the end they're kind of ah i know a couple of things now that i'm confidently uh doing now and so that's kind of satisfying sitting next to someone teaching them a couple things either at a conference or in university setting uh, or to a big group like in a training session and you kind of get the feeling yeah they understand it now they can apply it and 
that's really gratifying. And that is how I think is the best way to, um, you know, pass on knowledge. Of course, everyone can read a book or watch a YouTube video or whatever. And that's also a way of learning. But I think having someone explain it to you, getting that direct feedback, uh, how do I do this again? Uh, wait, wait, I, you lost me already. Uh, repeat that for me. That's direct and uh, better learning, I think, for all things and it has been done this way for many many years yeah and that's one thing i like about conferences you mentioned conferences there and mm. i i find that if there's something that i want to sort of uh, communicate or or have something that you know might be a value for somebody to learn i find conferences are, uh, the best place to go to because the people that want to learn that sort of stuff are actually attending the conference so yeah. you know they they they're there because they want to be there. They're not there because they have to earn a living or or because they've got to go to school because they've got to you know they've still got a few more years before they're allowed to go and go off into the wilderness and do whatever they want. So um, yeah, conferences are you know a really good place for you know people to go to not only learn stuff but um, you know help others learn. Yeah, like they do workshops. They do they do tutorials. Or they listen to a talk and they're like, huh, cool. I like this uh, overview talk that I now got. I can look into it myself now in more detail. And yeah, this is just a great way of learning. And uh, Or sitting in the hallway with someone uh, trying to, hey, can you explain this to me? I got this this far. I'm just having this problem or need this final bit to understand it. And they just tell it to you in like three or five minutes and you kind of had weeks to wrap your head around it and in five minutes you have the solution there. And uh, yeah, that's really great having that kind of uh, way to connect to people. Mm. Yeah, so let us uh, know about your own uh, yeah comments or ideas uh, about this article. Maybe you have some uh, point that we didn't uh, thought about. Uh, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Would be nice to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, yeah, would be. Everybody else will have their own take on it. So, yeah, feedback at bsd.tv. Mm -hmm. Moving on to Unix recovery legend. Uh, this article from Mario Walzik. Oh, sorry if I've um, butchered your name there, but um, uh, it's uh, not one that I'm used to. Uh, first appeared on Usenet back in 1986. So this is uh, quite a significant amount of time ago, before before the BSDs and before Linux, really. Mm -hmm. Um have you ever left your terminal logged in only to find when you came back to it that a supposed friend had typed rm minus rf tilde slash star and was hovering over the keyboard with the threats along the lines of lend me a fiver till Thursday or I hit return. Undoubtedly, the person in question would not have had the nerve to inflict such trauma upon you and was doing it in jest. So you've probably never experienced the worst of such disasters. It was a quiet Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday the 1st of October at 3.15 BST to be precise, when Peter, an office mate of mine, leaned away from his terminal and said to me, Mario, I'm having a little trouble sending mail. Knowing that MSG was capable of confusing even the most capable of people, I sauntered over to his terminal to see what was wrong. A strange error message from the form I forget the exact details, cannot access slash foo slash bar for user ID 147, had been issued by MSG. But my first thoughts was, who's user 147? The sender of the message, the destination of what? 
So I leaned over to another terminal already logged in and typed grep147 slash etc slash password only to receive the response slash etc slash password no such file or directory. Instantly, I guessed that something was amiss. This was confirmed when in response to ls slash etc, I got ls not found. I suggested to Peter that it would be a good idea not to try anything for a while and went off to find our system manager. When I arrived at his office, his door was ajar. Within 10 seconds, I realized that the problem was James, our manager, was sat down, head in hands, hands between knees, as one whose world had just come to an end. Our newly appointed system programmer, Neil, was beside him, gazing listlessly at a screen of his terminal. At the top of the screen, I spied the following lines, CD, and then the next line, RM minus RF star. Oh. (laughs) I thought. (laughs) That would just about explain it. I can't remember what happened in the succeeding minutes. My memory is just a blur. I do remember trying LS again, PS, who, and maybe a few other commands beside, all to no avail. Next thing I remember was being at my terminal again, a multi-window graphics terminal, and typing CD slash Echo Star. I owe a debt of thanks to David Korn for making Echo a built-in of his shell. Needless to say, slash bin, together with slash bin slash echo had been deleted. What transpired in the next few minutes was that slash dev slash etc and slash lib had also gone gone in their entirety. Fortunately, Neil had interrupted RM while it was somewhere down below slash news and slash temp slash user and slash users were all untouched. Meanwhile, James had made for our tape cupboard and retrieved what claimed to be a dump tape of the root file system taken four weeks earlier. The pressing question was, how do we recover the contents of the tape? Not only had we lost slash etc slash restore, but all of the device entries for the tape deck had vanished. And where does MKNOD live? You guessed it, slash etc. How about recovery across Ethernet of any of this from another VAX? Well, slash bin slash tar had gone, and thoughtfully the Berkeley people had put RCP in slash bin in the 4.3 distribution. What's more, none of the Ether stuff wanted to know without slash etc slash hosts at least. We found the version of CPIO in slash user slash local, but that was unlikely to do us any good without a tape deck. Alternatively, we could get the boot tape out and rebuild the root file system, but neither James nor Neil had done that before. And we weren't sure that the first thing to happen would be that the whole disk would be reformatted losing all our files. We take dumps of the user files every Thursday. By Murphy's law, this had happened on a Wednesday. So basically they've lost a week. (laughs) (laughs) There's a week difference since the backup. Another solution might be to borrow a disk from another VAX, boot off that and tidy up later, but that would entail calling a deck engineer out and at the very least. We had a number of users in the final throes of writing up PhD thesis and the loss of maybe a week's work, not to mention the machine downtime, was unthinkable. So what to do? The next idea was to write a program to make a device descriptor for the tape deck, but we all know where CC, AS, and LD live. Or maybe make skeletal entries for slash etc slash password, etc hosts, and so on, 
so that user bin FTP would work. By sheer luck, I had GNU Emacs still running on one of my windows, which we could use to create password, etc. But the first step was to create the directory to put them in. Of course, slash bin slash mkdir had gone and so had slash bin slash mv so we couldn't rename slash temp2 slash etc however this looked like a reasonable line of attack by now we had been joined by uh, Alice Dare our resident Unix guru and as luck would have it someone who knows Vax assembler so our plan became this write a program in assembler which would either rename slash temp to slash etc or make slash etc assemble it on another vax uu encode it type it type in the uu encoded file in using my gnu uu decode it some bright spark had thought to put uu decode in slash user slash bin run it and hey presto it would all be plain sailing from there by yet another miracle of good fortune the terminal from which the damage had been done was still sudoed into root SU is in bin, slash bin, remember? So at least we stood a good chance of all this working. Off we set on our merry way, and within only an hour, we had managed to concoct a dozen or so lines of assembler to create slash etc. The strip binary was only 76 bytes long, so we converted it into hex, slightly more readable than the output of UU encode, and typed it in using my editor. If any of you ever had the same problem, here's the hex for future reference. And they got an example of the hex. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. oh, geez. <laughs> oh, I'd hate to be in this situation. Today's, today's systems are so much more complicated than it was back in those days. But still, back in those days, this would have been mega scary. I had a handy program around, doesn't everybody? For converting ASCII hex to binary and the output of slash user slash bin slash sum tallied with our original binary. But hang on. How do you set execute permission without slash bin slash chmod? A few seconds thought, which as usual lasted a couple of minutes, suggested that we write the binary on top of an already existing binary owned by me, problem solved. So along we trotted to the terminal with the root login, carefully remembered to set the umask to zero so I could create the files in it using my GNU and run the binary. So now we had a slash etc writable by all. From there, it was just a few easy steps to create pa password, hosts, services, protocols, etc. Then FTP was willing to play ball. Then we recovered the contents of slash bin across the ether. It's amazing how much you come to miss LS after just a few short hours. <laughs> and selected from slash etc. The key file was slash etc r restore with which we recovered slash dev from the dump tape and the rest is history. Now you're asking yourself, as I am, what's the moral to this story? Well, for one thing, you must always remember the immortal words, don't panic. Our initial reaction was to reboot the machine and try everything as a single user, but it's unlikely it would have come up without slash etc slash init and slash bin slash sh. Rational thought saved us from this one. The next thing to remember is that Unix tools really can be put to unusual purposes. Even without my GNU Emacs, we could have survived by, say, using slash user slash bin slash grep as a substitute for slash bin slash cat. And the final thing is, it's amazing how much of the system you can delete without it falling apart completely. Apart from the fact that nobody could log in with slash bin slash 
login and most of the useful commands had gone, everything else seemed normal. Of course, some things can't stand life without, say, slash etc slash termcat or slash dev slash kmem or slash etc slash utemp, but by and large, it all hangs together. I shall leave you with this question. If you were placed in the same situation and had the presence of mind that always comes with hindsight, could you have got out in a simpler or easier way? Answers on the postage stamp to um, oh. feedback at vsdnow.tv. We want to hear that <laughs> raw. We want to hear that war story. That would be absolutely <laughs> awesome because oh, <laughs> this would have been like oh, edgier seat stuff for at least this a day. Chilling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah, if you've got a war story like this, this is this is awesome. This is right up there. Yeah, they are all. I mean, back in the days, they were all working on the same machine and. They were all affected this, but it's also nice to see that how they all came together and, oh, I still have a, a terminal and I still have an editor open and this one is still locked in as root. So let's put this all together. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great it's, story. It's amazing, um, you know, when we used to use, you know, multi, multi-user machines, which were literally multi-users, you know, you mm. had one machine and everybody logged into it. It's, it's not like that these days. Um, so yeah. I suppose um, the... The damage is probably far less uh, these days, especially you know, within, in the world of Kubernetes and things like that. You know, you're oh, working yeah. on nodes and but you can have course, a node destroyed. Server, <laughs> yeah, then but, it's yeah, your but, own workstation. No one cares about except yeah. you. But yeah, if it's the central server that everyone's using, that is still affecting everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Michael. Okay. Lu- I'm sure Michael Lucas has a few war stories around this one back in his sysadmin oh, yeah. days. So. Yeah, should, I think we should, uh, should do another him. interview with him yeah. just for those. <laughs> so let's move on in the news roundup. We have a useful Unix command uh, list for data science. And this one has, imagine you have a 4.2 gigabyte CSV file. By the way, if you have that, then you're already in a lot of bigger trouble that's my take on it but let's hear this uh, it has over 12 million records in 50 columns all you need from this file is the sum of all values in one particular column how would you do that writing a script in python ruby Perl, whatever would probably take a few minutes and then even more time for the script to actually complete a database and sql would be fairly quick but then you'd have to load the data which is kind of a pain Thankfully, the Unix utilities exist and they are awesome. To get the sum of a column in a huge text file, we can easily use awk and we won't even need to read the entire file into memory. Let's assume our data, which we'll call data.csv, is type limited and we want to sum the fourth column of the file. So you do cat data.csv. Oh, you can even omit that one because awk takes a file as a parameter. So, okay. Uh, arc capital F to d- define what the uh, field separator is. In this case, it's the pipe. And then you do in single quotes, uh, sum plus equals dollar four, which is the fourth column in this case. And then you have an end statement. So after all this processing is done, something at the end should be done. And they do a printf of exactly this sum that was just generated. So they uh, explain this here in the article. It took less than two minutes to run on the entire file, much faster than other options and written in a lot fewer characters. So uh, Hillary Mason and uh, Chris Wiggins wrote over this at the Dataist blog about the importance of any data scientists being familiar with the command line. And I couldn't agree with them more. 
the command line is essential to my daily work, so I wanted to share some of the commands I found most useful. And so for those who are a bit newer to the command line than the rest of this post assumes, Hillary previously wrote a nice introduction to it. That's linked from the article. And you can find the details there. Other commands, head and tail, for example. Sometimes you just need to inspect the structure of a huge file. That's where head and tail come in. Uh, head prints the first 10 lines of a file, while tail prints the last 10. Optionally, you can include the end parameter to change the number of lines displayed. So they provide an example there as well. Then there's word count. By default, word count will quickly tell you how many lines, that's WC by the way, uh, how many lines, words, and bytes there are in a file. If you're looking for just the line count, you can pass the L parameter in, and they use it most often to verify record counts between files or database tables throughout an analysis. Then there's grab or rip grab even, right? Um, rip, uh, so grab allows you to search through plain text files using rec expressions. I tend to avoid regular expressions when possible, but still find grab to be invaluable when searching through log files for a particular event. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of options of note, uh, for example, dash I to ignore the case, uh, R to recursively search directories, uh, capital B and the number of lines before, and A for the number of lines after. Z is similar to grab and awk in many ways, however, they find that they most often use it when needing to do some find and replace magics on a very large file. The usual occurrence is when they've received a CSV file that was generated on Windows, and my Mac isn't able to handle the carriage return properly, so they switch around those uh, special characters. They're sort and unique as well. Sort outputs the lines of a file in order based on a column key using the dash K parameter. And if a key isn't specified, sort will treat each line as a concatenated string and sort based on the values of the first column. There are N and R parameters that allow you to sort numerically and in reverse order respectively. Yeah. Um, and they close with, while it's sometimes difficult to remember all of the parameters for the Unix commands, getting familiar with them has been beneficial to their productivity and allowed them to avoid many headaches when working with large text files. Hopefully you'll find them as useful as they have. So yeah, Unix keeps being relevant even in the modern day of data analysis tools that are too big to fail. <laughs> that it is. That it is. Our next article is from Colin Percival. Uh, it was written uh, and placed on the TarSnap mailing list uh, back on the 22nd of July, 2023, with regards to the TarSnap outage post-mortem. Uh, there was an outage uh, from the 2nd of the 7th, uh, 2023. So that's the 2nd of July, 2023, to the 3rd of July, 2023. So we've we've basically broken down uh, this and summarized the email. So we'll run through that. I promised a post-mortem three weeks ago after I brought the TarSnap service back online. It took me an unforgivably long time to get around to writing this, but here it is. It's approximately 2023-0702-130758 UTC. The central TarSnap server hosted on Amazon's EC2 US East 1 region went offline suffering a failed system status check. As a virtual machine, this could mean many things, including a power outage, a hardware failure on a physical server, or an outage in the EC2 network. All I can say is that since I haven't seen reports of any widespread EC2 issues at the same time, it was most likely just an isolated hardware fault. The server logs after rebooting showed file system corruption. 
it's clear that whatever took the system offline either killed the hardware or severed it from the elastic block store which holds its file system. I decided to continue with set, setting up a new server rather than attempting to recover the old one. The Tarsnap service stores data in an Amazon S3 as a log structured file system with each S3 object consisting of a header with metadata for all of the log entries followed by optionally data for the log entries. For example, a start right transaction log entry has a header identifying the machine and transaction nuance but has no log data, while a store data block log entry has a header identifying the machine and block name along with the block data. Under normal conditions, log entry metadata is also cached in the EC2 and is never read from Amazon S3. The only reads from Amazon S3 are to read block data in response to requests from the TaskNap client. The process of recovering the EC2 instance state consists of two steps. First, reading all of the metadata headers from S3 and second, replaying all of those operations locally. These cannot be performed at the same time since the use of lock-structured storage means that the log entries are rewritten to free up storage when the data is deleted. Log entries contain sequence numbers to allow them to be replayed in the correct order, but they must be sorted into the correct order after being retrieved before they can be replayed. Sounds like a bit of a loop to get through, through that before it uh, can start the recovery process. The second step failed almost immediately, with an error telling me that replayed log entry was recording data be belonging to a machine that didn't exist. This provoked some head scratching until I realized that this was introduced by some code I wrote in 2014. Occasionally, TaskNap users need to move a machine between accounts, and I handle this storing a new machine registration log entry and deleting the previous one. Unfortunately, while I had tests for this, I never tested regenerating the service state after a machine is re-owned while having data stored. And since the new machine registration log entry has a higher sequence number, the server was quite right in objecting that data was stored and belonged to a machine which didn't exist yet. The process was also somewhat slower than it should have been. Had I realized that the disk throughput bound, I would have configured the relevant EBS volume for higher throughput. Unfortunately, by this point, I was quite sleep deprived, so I wasn't monitoring the process closely. Otherwise, I would have noticed this in both GSTAT and Amazon CloudWatch and reconfigured the EBS volume. By about 23.07.03.15.10 UTC, I didn't record the exact time, the state reconstruction process had completed. I ran some quick tests with the server in read-only mode and compared against the old server state to make sure that things matched up aside from the old server's file system having lost the last few seconds of data when the server failed. And then I brought it online. The first live post outage traffic was 2023-07-03-1525-58 uh, UTC, roughly 26 hours and 16 minutes after the outage started. It's uh, a pretty interesting and concise, I'd suggest going uh, the users of TaskNap to go and read the, the post-mortem. Uh, Colin goes into quite some detail of how the back end of TarSnap works. Uh, it's it's quite technically advanced. Um, I, I wasn't sure how it worked. It's uh, hmm. um, it's only documented how how your data is protected by the TarSnap service. So uh, it it was a really good 
really good reading, really good article, and um, he's very transparent on on how uh, it took and what it took to get that service back online again. Yeah, not every uh, company, whether they are doing backups or other services, are that transparent or describing what went wrong in their operations. So yeah, that's uh, one of the benefits that Tarsnap gives. Yeah, and if you you know if you can really trust your data, then if they're that transparent, transparent with the encryption that goes on, and transparent with how the back end works uh, after a, a failure, um, you know, yeah, it's a place that you can trust your data to. All right. Uh, next up is OpenBSD seven dot three on a twenty year old IBM ThinkPad R thirty one over at box.matto.nl. And so they used their old IBM ThinkPad R31 for the 2023 edition of the Old Computer Challenge. So that was started with a blog post by Celine. We had that on the show a couple of times. And uh, this is apparently going around. Celine announced the 2023 edition with a separate post linked from the blog. You can read more about the challenge on occ.deadnet.se. There are also there's also a gopher hole in a Gemini capsule on occ.net.se. So if you want to participate, there's a nice little community out there. So the ThinkPad R31. This is a very solid built laptop that still functions fine. It does have some hardware problems. Backlight of the display is at the end of its life. Battery and CMOS battery backup are both dead spacebar of the keyboard needs more pressure the fan does run regular or irregular but perhaps this is just some dust buildup. because of the dead batteries the clock of the machine does not work when the charger is not connected the first time it boots after connecting of the charger i have to input the date the laptop feels much heavier and much more clunky or chunky than any thinkpad x201 and thinkpad x270 of course yeah that's uh the, the age of the machine. Unfortunately, OpenBSD doesn't recognize the track point. An external USB mouse works, but I have not used it and went mouseless through the week. So the specs of the the thing, back in the day that was modern or high-end, high, uh, Intel Celeron 1133 MHz, uh, 256 megabyte of RAM, megabyte people, megabyte, display 14.1 inch, 1024 by 768 resolution, RJ45 and RJ11 connectors, two USB ports, and a DVD drive. The machine cannot boot from USB, so you have to install an operating system from a CD or DVD or over Pixie. Uh, the keyboard layout is Dutch uh, in their case, which requires some getting used to, and that's perfectly fine for them. Uh, display troubles. The display sometimes gave some trouble. Several times I had to work with a dim display and needed to put the screen at about 20 centimeters from my face in order to read the screen. Other times the display was not very bright but perfectly readable. One time it kept almost completely dark and I managed to enter the date and reboot the machine. It kept dark. The session I used over R31 over SSH from another machine. So they described their setup a little bit. Uh, they used the Rat Poison window manager and some utilities there, uh, Tmux IRC client ERC, which is part of Emacs, uh, GNU's also part of Emacs for the Usenet reading, uh, also for email, and the Gopher client is Alpher, which is a mode for Emacs. So if you have Emacs, you have already an operating system, it seems. It can do a lot. Uh, the Gemini client is also Alpher, and for web browsing, they use EWW, part of Emacs, and Lynx Plus. Uh, they have a section about RSS feeds, uh, and uh, the Fediverse is a bit bigger. 
So they use Honk there as their activity pub server. They switch from Preroma, it seems. With the server, they're part of the Fediverse. And Honk is written in Go, uses SQLite as a database, and is almost JavaScript free. Uh, they describe their experiences there a little bit. Uh, when staying within a text mode only, it works fine. One time they saw there were a lot of posts with pictures in their timeline, so they started links dash lowercase g to get some graphics. This was not a good idea as the machine started to use a lot of swap space and it became very slow. Okay, well, yeah, it's an old machine. Uh, they describe a bit more Gopher and Gemini, the guile scheme they have, the track point issues, and the daily experiences. Uh, 20 years ago, I used this laptop as my main workstation. I have worked on it for quite some time before upgrading the memory from 128 megabytes to 256 megabytes. Web browser Netscape at the time, or Mozilla, they don't recall, that worked fine. They used some self-made PHP web service for project management on that. Yeah, we've all been there. Times have changed. From the previous editions of the challenge, I knew that a modern web browser like Firefox is not an option, given the limited RAM and the 32 bits operating system. Booting the machine takes quite some time. Also, changing Xterm to Emacs and back takes some time. Using RSC and email is fine. Loading the RSS feeds is a bit slower, but better than they expected. Opening items works fine. Opening links to web pages takes a bit more time, but still workable. They didn't notice any differences running queries with the new REC utils with a small database. And at the bottom, they tell a bit about the old computer challenge community. So if you're interested in that, uh, it's not too big, but people seem to come and go. Probably there's some kind of critical size. The number of people should at least be a bit about the threshold for the long term of viability and the community. Overall, I like this kind of approach to revive some old hardware. Yeah, it. Um, you can tell the age of the equipment when they're mentioning a RJ11 connector attached yeah. to the machine it's like for the uh, for the young at heart uh, the rj11 connector was uh, typically used for uh, pstn connections to have a modem ah uh, yeah the good old days <laughs> uh moving on into the beastie bits we have a post over on the freebsd forum uh if you haven't been the freebsd forum it's a good place to hang out so uh, go over there and check out but on the this post it's uh, quick and dirty imap uw server uh, this one's written by omiko uh, everybody even me is using dovecot nowadays but for a quick and dirty config free imap installation on my home network with senmail i still prefer imap uw since the source is getting harder to find every day and maybe be lost forever in the near future, I link the three too big to attach files you need to get a working IMAP POP3 server on FreeBSD. Uh, the three files are user local libexec IMAPD, IPOP3D, and uh, user local lib libpam.so.5. Uh, first, uh, chmod 744. The uh, IMAP D and IPOP 3D files, and then uh, vi slash uh, etc slash inetd.conf, uh, uncomment the relevant sections. Jamod uh, minus capital R 600 slash bar slash mail. So you're setting that recursively, and then Jamod uh, all plus rwxt slash bar slash mail, and 10 minutes work, uh, eternal bliss. <laughs> So quick hack and dirty, okay, yeah. dirty, dirty and quick um, uh, hack to get uh, IMAP running on your home network. That's uh, an interesting way of doing it. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, then we have on hackaday.com Jenny's Daily Drivers, 3BSD 13.2 in this case. Uh, last month, uh, they started a series in which they try out different operating systems with the aim of using them for their everyday work. And their pick was Slackware 15, the latest version of the first Linux distro they tried back in the mid-1990s. And I'll be back with more Linux-based operating system in due course, they say. But the whole point of this series is to roam as far and wide as possible and try everything reasonable uh, operating system as they can. Though today they're making the obvious first sideways step in trying a BSD-based operating system. These are uncharted waters for them, and there was a substantial choice to be made as to which one. So after reading around the project or the subject, they settled on FreeBSD as it seemed the most accessible. And then they have a bit of a context uh, about uh, what uh, BSD is and their original AT&T Unix code. And then they, after that, they mentioned also uh, NetBSD and GhostBSD as other ways of getting a BSD, um, followed by a section about unexpectedly easy to install. So they describe their experiences there. You can read the whole article here. I just glance over it in the BSD bits here. And then after the... The installation part went quite well so far, going to a de desktop environment even, uh, making sure your hardware is uh, new enough, but not too new, they say. And they talk a bit about NVIDIA support and uh, getting a bit of retro feeling on the VESA resolution. Uh, overall, the last um, paragraph reads, I'm sure with a newer supported video card, I would have had the full resolution and it's an operating system I may even put on another PC with better specs to continue experimenting with. If I have a gripe with FreeBSD though, it's in the documentation for newbies. I had my years of experience with Linux to help me find what I needed, but even though the installation process is relatively painless, I found the answers to my few queries could be difficult to prize out. It's definitely an OS to look at, but occasionally you'll need to exercise elite Google Foo if you're not a Unix 7. Go on, give it a try. And moving on to a new shell, uh, Elvish is an expressive programming language and versatile interactive shell combined into one seamless package. It runs on Linux, BSDs, Mac OS, and Windows. Yeah, it's just a uh, small page. There's a link in the show notes um, of what it can do, where you can find it, and um, how to get yourself going on it. So they have a couple of nice features that other shells uh, don't necessarily have built in or needed by, uh, or only have by way of plugins, uh, but they seem to have um, that built in right away. So check that out if you're looking for a different shell experience. Then we have a story about XRoach over on uh, InfoSec Exchange on Mastodon. So if you uh, don't recall what XRoach is, here's a bit of an output. Uh, put from what's that that seems like wikipedia so xroach is the classic xroach game for x11 displays disgusting cockroaches on your root window these creepy crawlies scamper around until they find a window to hide under whenever you move or iconify a window they ex expose beetles again scamper for cover uh, so that's cleaned up for modern c compilers please be aware that this version still has some bugs ha 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 and glitches so here's a story from uh, someone replying to that uh, back from Paco Hope back in the day I got called to a professor's office I was IT support in the CS department and the professor was complaining his Spark 4 was running slow first thing I did was minimize a window and there was just this black square bit by bit roaches slowly moved 
like 0.5 frames per second. So many X roaches under his X turn that it was just a solid black square. The roaches multiply if they are left alone long enough. This professor never moved windows. So roaches scurried under his windows and then sat there, never disturbed by being exposed, slowly multiplying at some rate. Some grad student had thought it would be funny to play a prank on the professor and run X roach on him. But the professor obviously never saw the roaches, so they hid under his windows, slowly increasing until finally they soaked up so much memory that it impaired performance. <laughs> I couldn't imagine how fast a Spark 4 would have been running at that point. I mean, they were slow enough without ro- X roaches running. It's <laughs> Glacial would be one way of putting it. <laughs> For sure. And then uh, over on the Mastodon as well uh, was a quote from uh, Damien Miller uh, of OpenSSH fame and uh, a quick statement that said, did hell freeze over? And the included uh, link is to a Git repo on sourceware.org regarding glibc. Mm-hmm. So implement strl cpy and strl cat. These functions are about to be added to POSIX under the Austin Group issue 986. The fortified STRL cat implementation does not raise SIGAR BART, but the destination buffer does not contain the null terminator. It just inherits the null failing of regular STRL cat behavior. So glibc has finally moved into the present. I won't say into the future because... Uh, We've had this uh, in our operating systems for quite some time in the BSD worlds. So, oh, yeah. uh, yes, now the Linux is uh, joining us with uh, the two functions there. Yeah. For those who have followed the latest glibc, they will get that. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Moving into feedback and questions that people have written us uh, to feedback at bsdnow.tv. The first one is Nelson with some Bell Labs memoranda. We have found an index of a larger collection of Bell Labs technical memoranda of 1972 to 1980, but not the reports themselves. And uh, in the show notes is the link to the tiny URL uh, to the the um, archive. Uh, that message to the 
TUHS list gives examples of how to quickly search entries from the catalog or all entries that are recorded in the unix.bib. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great to have that for the Unix uh, people who want to reminisce the old old days. And uh, next is Patrick with some audio switching question. How do I enable audio automatic switching of audio between my speakers and my headphones? When I plug my headphones in, audio should go to them. When I unplug them, audio should revert to the speakers. Such a seemingly simple thing has been a real headache trying to solve. I found a very few Google results on the topic, and the best I've been able to achieve has been getting the audio from the speakers to shut off when I play uh, when I plug in my headphones. But there is no audio from my headphones. Manually changing the active audio output is tedious. Thank you so much. If you can help me solve this, mm. yeah, I'm I'm not too sure on the hardware that's that's at play here, or what sort of laptop uh, or PC uh, that's being used here. So it's a bit hard to tell. Uh, I know. Uh, from past experience, uh, certain in in Windows, certain drivers handle that uh, transition from the speakers to the headphones when you plug them in. Uh, for my ThinkPad uh, with BSDs, I really haven't had the issue. The you plug it in and it goes from the speaker to the headphones. So um, I think that's done in hardware on those. Uh, there's no real drivers for that. So I think that yeah, the manually changing it just depends on the type of hardware you've got in play here so um if you've got a bit more information for us uh we might be able to provide a bit more insights to this mm. or try different headphones or your current headphones on another pc if available so that if whether it's the pc hardware or the, the headphones itself uh if someone else has experienced this and may have found a solution then we'll be happy to link this back and cover it in a future episode uh, so also send this to feedback at bscnow.tv so that we can connect the two and maybe provide a solution that way. Mm, yeah, and also be careful of the barrel jacks um, because some modern headphones have got the microphone built in it, so the barrel jack's got one more ring around it. And it won't be mm. it won't be completely aligned, so that may interfere with the hardware uh, switchover between speakers and um, headphones. So yeah, just be mindful of new and old hardware in that respect. Mm. Okay, then next is Tim. Why do I have to suddenly think about Tim the Enchanter from <laughs> Monty Python? I'm not sure. Sorry, that got in the way. Um, about App Jail. Uh, it goes, hi all. Just curious whether any of you have had a chance to check out App Jail, which seems to be a fairly feature-complete jail management framework written in C and Born Shell, focused on creating jails that behave like applications. Its website is uh, github.com slash dtxfd. Uh, XF, yeah, D, capital D, capital F, slash app jail. I first saw it mentioned in one of Vermadon's valuable news posts. I looked online to see whether it's well regarded, but I don't see it mentioned in the FreeBSD handbook or the FreeBSD wiki site. So app jail, I haven't looked at it myself, and there's plenty of jail management frameworks out there. Uh, we're currently reworking the FreeBSD handbook. Um, uh, Sergio does that, and a couple of people are reviewing his changes. So in the jails chapter, we've always been on the fence what kind of f- um, framework to recommend as the official because, well, there are so many of them and we're kind of oblivious like which one we should endorse this way if it's actually an endorsement. Um, so it's good to have plenty of options available in jail management. And if uh, it's not on the jail management wiki page yet, then it's probably just an oversight. Get an account and add it yourself. And so 
it's listed as part of the others. Yeah, it looks interesting as a, a feature set. Uh, it provides, it's quite comprehensive. And yeah, you now heard it on BSD Now. Probably a couple of people will check it out this way. And yeah, thanks for writing it, letting us know about the tool that it exists. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. yeah, come and help us uh, keep the uh, FreeBSD wiki up to date. Um, if you've got something out there that you think needs to be added to the wiki, um, you know, we're always looking for more volunteers to sign up and uh, help out with the wiki in itself. Uh, quite a few of us work across many uh, facets of the wiki. Uh, so uh, more hands, the better. And, uh, you know, helping us out helps everybody else out. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to be a programmer to just edit a wiki and list it there and maybe you find some typos uh, somewhere along the way, then you can change that as well. So the wiki is really not just for developers, but pretty much anyone that wants to give something back or let someone else know about this tool. I believe the uh, FreeBSD Discord group um, get together for a bit of a wiki hack every now and then, um, and then they live stream it inside the Discord channel. So uh Oh, that's even probably, better. Yeah, that's probably another way to get involved uh, uh, with an active group that do uh, wiki cleanups from time to time. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Uh, then that's the part about the feedback and questions. Uh, thanks to everyone who sent it uh, or who also sent us like uh, articles we've read or we covered in future episodes or going to cover in future episodes. So that's always good. And with that, we leave you to it. And we can also look forward to our next episode that's coming out as usual next week. Thank you. See you later.